we're really disappointed to say the least that the governor vetoed the two bills that we sponsored, the Safety Stop and the Freedom to Walk Act. So all this is, is coordinating existing city efforts and departments in a much, hopefully, more efficient way to actually get it done. Welcome to Bike Talk. This is Lindsay Sturman, and we have Dave Snyder, the executive director of CalBike with us today to talk about three big bills that got vetoed by Gavin Newsom. Well, welcome, Dave, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, thank you, Lindsay. Thanks very much for having me on. We're really disappointed, to say the least, that the governor vetoed the two bills that we sponsored, the Safety Stop and the Freedom to Walk Act and really innovative proposal by Laura Friedman, Assembly Bill 1147, to require regions to create 15-minute neighborhoods and bicycle highways. He vetoed all of those on spurious grounds. Very disappointing. Any thoughts on why? Yeah, the two bills that we sponsored were important in a symbolic way more than anything, and especially important for those of us who suffer discriminate police enforcement and harassment. People who, who the cops are looking to pull over or accost people of color in California. It's very disappointing that the governor didn't understand how important it is to remove the illegality behaviors that all of us do on a regular basis. All of us roll through stop signs already. We approach the intersection, we look to see if there's any traffic or pedestrian that we might have to yield to or stop for. And if not, we keep going. You mean on a bike, right? On a bike, yeah. And then if we're walking down the street and we see our bus coming on the other side of the street, we look both ways to see if there's any traffic. And if there's not, we run across the street so we can catch the bus so we don't have to wait for another hour or a half hour for the next bus. It's normal and critically important behavior. It's critically important use of our streets that ought not to be illegal. And the fact that the governor couldn't see the importance of that is really disappointing. It's also a bummer because ticketing people for this stuff doesn't solve it, right? The real problem here is the speed of the cars, because if cars are going a reasonable speed, they not only have a bigger window to stop, but Newton's second law of physics forces mass times acceleration. If you're going slower and you hit something, it's much safer than if you're going fast. It goes from, you might get knocked down, you might break something to you're absolutely dead and it's horrifying. Yeah, the problem is fast cars. It's not people jumping in front of them. Yeah. Which is what the data would seem to indicate is that all over California, people are throwing their bodies in front of a legally operated automobile with great injury. That's what the data show because I don't think whenever someone gets hit by a car that the speed of that car was taken into account. If you look both ways and you don't see any traffic, but someone's coming at 90 miles per hour and you get hit because they weren't paying attention, the police officer can't prove that the driver was speeding because they don't make skid marks anymore. They assign the blame to the pedestrian. Right. We just have to choose. Do we want our streets to be safe to walk on and bike on Mm -hmm. and use, or is everything a freeway? Yeah. I'll share a story from a bunch of years ago. I'm riding my bike on Market Street in San Francisco. And 
a police officer decided that it was his job to ticket bicyclists who crossed an intersection against the red light. It was a T intersection. It was one of those intersections where there's no logical reason that that red light should even apply to bicyclists because they're not really crossing any traffic, but it's nevertheless illegal. And this officer thought that it would be important for him to teach those bicyclists a lesson. And he just sat on the other side of the intersection and was writing ticket after ticket. And I walked up to the interaction between this young woman and the officer who was writing her a ticket. And she was crying. She was so upset because she knew this was like a $300, $400 ticket, right? I mean, those tickets are expensive. And if you're low income, it's hurtful. And she was low income. She was crying because she said, I bought this bike. I put a couple hundred dollars into this used bike. So I didn't have to pay for the bus anymore because I couldn't afford the bus. I might as well just go back to the bus. If, if you're going to give me a ticket for riding the way everyone rides. She was so upset. And it made me so sad that this was what our police think is a priority. It really upset me. And it's an example of why we need to you know, change the dumb laws that should not apply to people riding bicycles. And it's an example of why it's a validation of our commitment to social equity as a priority, our commitment to making sure that our work, first and foremost, benefits uh, low-income people and people who have suffered the most from past transportation decisions in, in our racialized society. That means uh, black and brown people. It validates that because I think that the governor's complete lack of apparent empathy and complete failure to understand what it's like to have to ride a bike for transportation or to have to take the bus because you can't afford a car. He doesn't understand that. He's never had to do that in his life. He grew up in a fairly elite family in Marin, right? So he never, he never had a chance to understand that. And I think that lack of understanding has overridden his normal reliance on data. The governor is very data-driven person. He's a policy one. He looks at the data and he makes his decision for the most part based on what the data tell him, supposedly, unless his biases and conditioning tell him otherwise, which is what happened in this case. Because the data would say that we really need to emphasize walking and bicycling as the future of transportation in California. It is the most cost-effective way to get people around. The implications for health are huge. The implications for reducing inequity are huge. The implications for safety and joy are huge. The data are clear. That, in this case, was not enough to sway the governor. It's really disappointing. Yeah, I wonder, has anyone ever talked about tickets in general being progressive, meaning it's tied to your income? I don't know the status of that. Because really, one of the arguments against speed cameras, which for so many reasons makes sense, is that it's not fair, the tickets are too high. And I actually agree with that. And I think Norway has progressive tickets. It's the guy who ran Nokia this may be fact-free, but this is my memory of anecdote. The guy who ran Nokia got a speeding ticket and it was like $80,000 because he was so rich. <laughs> but I'm not advocating for $80,000 speeding tickets, but I do think it's completely fair. I am. <laughs> for people who can afford it, that's necessary. I think we should end on that note that Dave Snyder advocates tech bros <laughs> get $80,000 speed tickets.
Well, and for lower speeding tickets for low income people, right? And there's a lot of reluctance among our allies in the equity community to enforce speed because of the genuine hardship that a speeding ticket imposes on low income people. And the way we enforce it, which is we design our roads to encourage speeding. We almost never enforce it. So we tease people along to let them think that they can get away with speeding. And then when we slap them with the ticket, if you're low income, it could bankrupt you, right? That's a dumb way to enforce a law. Well, you really got to enforce it much more strictly so that people don't think they can get away with it and lower the fee for low income people so that it's something that hurts a little bit, but doesn't bankrupt right. uh, and, I mean- and have $80,000 fees for a millionaire. I also want to talk about AB 1147 for a minute, bill by Laura Friedman that would have required regional planning agencies like Metro and LA and the MTC in the Bay Area to develop 15-minute neighborhoods and bicycle highways, to develop connected networks that would really make it possible for people to get to everything that they need in their daily lives with a 15-minute bike ride. It was a visionary proposal that was compromised and negotiated so that it would be acceptable, and the governor vetoed it nevertheless, claiming that he was going to increase active transportation funding in the future, not understanding that we need to do more than just increase the amount of money we saw at the problem. We need to change the way we are spending that money and do more than increase it by some small amount. The fact is that under this governor's leadership, he asked one of his agent staff to increase the active transportation budget by $100 million in a transportation budget that is $10 billion during the governor's term. And he's increased it by $100 million during a penny at it. It's insulting. So if he says he wants to increase extra transportation funding, well, we'll take him up on that, but better do it for real and not just throw a penny at it. Thank More you. news on that later. Yes, <laughs> to be continued. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Lindsay. I really do appreciate it. Have Michael Schneider, who is the founder of Streets for All, which is a relatively new advocacy organization in Los Angeles, and they're doing a lot of good things. So welcome to the show, Michael. We love to have you guys on. And today we're going to talk about an initiative that you guys are working on for Complete Streets in Los Angeles. Thanks for having me, Don. So I was checking out the Zoom that you guys did a couple of days ago with a council member from Santa Monica. Prior to that, you guys made mention of an initiative, I guess we'd call it, where you would be following the Bureau of Street Services repaving schedule and then aligning your advocacy efforts around that to make sure that when they repave, they would hopefully install complete street designs that I guess the LADOT has already put together that's already part of the bike plan or how would this initiative work and do you have a name for the initiative? Yeah, so let's back up for a second just to give context. In 2015, as you and probably many of the listeners know, LA passed a mobility plan 2035 that was chock full of, among other things, bike lanes. And because the city has been sued so many times for putting bike lanes on bad pavement, they no longer install bike lanes if the pavement is not pretty close to perfect. And as you know, from going around Los Angeles, we don't have a huge amount of streets where the pavement is just already perfect. So when you put it all together, it means that the city is really only implementing new bike lanes when they repave streets. 
The other issue that we have is there are two agencies that are involved in repaving streets. There's the Bureau of Street Services, now known as Streets LA. They actually do the asphalt. And then there's LADOT, which dictates how to stripe the street. And so you think, since the mobility plan was passed in 2015, and it's part of our city's general plan, it would seem very logical that when the city repaves streets, they implement the mobility plan. It's basically a free opportunity. It doesn't cost more to stripe a bike lane or not, considering the street is already going to be restriped at that time. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Streets LA can move really quickly because repaving streets are not controversial. But LADOT is tasked with doing community outreach. Each council office dictates how much outreach. Of course, the council office has veto power if they don't like what they see or they don't like the project, even if it is part of the mobility plan. And DOT also has to design the streets and basically get the political will done. So they move much, much slower for the same stretch of road compared to Streets LA. So what we did is we looked at the next three fiscal years. Remember, the city goes from July is the beginning of their fiscal year. And we looked at 21, 22, 22, 23, and 23, 24 at all of the planned repavings that Streets LA already has on their docket. Then we compared that to the city's mobility plan. And we essentially coded it in four different ways. Let's say, for example, nothing is there right now, and the mobility plan calls for a protected or unprotected bike lane. We would call that an implement opportunity. So you're going from zero and you're implementing the mobility plan. If, let's say, an unprotected bike lane exists and the mobility plan calls for a protected bike lane, we would call that an upgrade opportunity. If, let's say, an unprotected bike lane exists, the mobility plan calls for an unprotected bike lane, we'd say that's complete because when they repave the street, they're going to stripe it the same way. And then we have a fourth category for bus lanes that are planned on the mobility plan. Bus lanes are not quite as sensitive to repaving as bike lanes because buses, of course, have much bigger tires and they're not as sensitive to bad pavement like people on bikes are. So that's the initiative. Get way ahead of the repaving schedule. Prioritize it based on high injury network, connecting the dots. We don't have much of a bike network in LA. So how do we connect the things that don't quite connect? And then political will in a council office. Do we have a cooperative council member and potentially cooperative neighborhood councils? And the first step is getting this on everyone's radar. The city did not have something like this until we did it, which is kind of insane. So hopefully now Streets LA and DOT and us and any other advocacy groups that want to help will all be working off of the same dashboard, all see the same opportunities in the same way. And again, get way ahead of it. So DOT has plenty of time to do the outreach and build the political will and design the street. So by the time Streets LA gets there and repaves, the mobility plan is a foregone conclusion, and we're striping in the planned bike lanes. Man, I love this. You guys rock. So if people out there want to get involved, where do you keep the schedule? How can people get to it and start helping you help the city do this? We made a very, very simple bit.ly link. So it's bit.ly, which is B-I-T dot L-Y slash mobility dash plan. So they can go there bit.ly slash mobility dash plan. And they can see there's three tabs at the bottom, one for each fiscal year. It's color coded. They can see all the opportunities. They should sign up at streetsforall.org and put in their address. That's how we know what council district they're in. And that's how we'll be able to let them know when they need to call into a neighborhood council meeting or city council meeting or whatever is needed to get the bike lane approved. And you know, if someone's super passionate about a particular street, and they want to help us, they should fill out the volunteer form and we're happy to give them the toolkit to be able to move it forward even faster. That is completely awesome. 
So Lindsay Sturman, who's our co-host at Bike Talk, forwarded me an article this morning about Providence, Rhode Island, that has an ordinance called the Green and Complete Streets Ordinance. Do you think it's worth pursuing some kind of policy like that in LA, or should we just be going block by block? If we go block by block, you and I are going to be dead before we can actually <laughs> bike around Los Angeles in a safe way. So we can't go block by block. But it's still worth it though, right? I mean, that's what essentially we're doing right now. But is it politically worth it even trying to get a Green Streets ordinance put in? This is amazing. I think this is a great way to get what we want because the city just seems to never want to do it. And this is obviously coordinated. This is well put together, this idea. I'm just curious if you think at some point we should also be fighting for that or just go with this plan. So let's talk about both things separately. I think it's worth the fight to do block by block or mile by mile, because at some point there will be a tipping point. At some point you'll have enough where at least one or two or three communities will wake up and say, wow, we actually can get to the grocery store or to my kid's school or to my work outside of a car. This is great. I'm never going to sit in traffic again. So I do think it's still worth it. Every little bit helps buy more political will for the next bit. As far as a big plan, I think Providence Ordinance is fantastic. We're a really, really unique city. We are one of the only cities that passes really bold, ambitious plans and has no obligation at all to actually implement them. So I think an ordinance requiring the city to implement the mobility plan whenever they touch the street would be a very good idea. They already have similar things around ADA access. So if the city touches a sidewalk and the sidewalk is not ADA compliant, they have to widen it and do the ramps and make sure it is, for example. So why not have the same thing for the mobility plan? If the city wants nicer repaved streets like we all do, great. But the council office is going to have to live with the mobility plan elements as well. Okay. Let's do that web address one more time and put it out there. And do you have a name for this campaign? We don't. All this is, is just coordinating departments within the city to get their shit together sooner and quicker than they otherwise would have. And I'll say one more thing. We woke up to this problem during COVID. During COVID, the city had an ADAPT program. And that meant they were repaving major commercial streets a lot faster because of the traffic law during COVID. They repaved a street in Hollywood that has a planned bike lane on it. And they didn't put the bike lane. Why didn't they put the bike lane? No one even looked at it. No one even looked at the mobility plan. They just sort of like zombies just kept going as status quo. We can't let that happen. Because we only stripe bike lanes when we repave streets, that means that that street's not going to have the planned bike lane for another 15, 20 years until it's repaved again. We can't afford to be repaving streets and not implementing our mobility plan. It means that it just won't happen. So all this is, is coordinating existing city efforts and departments in a much, hopefully, more efficient way to actually get it done. Michael Schneider with Streets for All. You guys are amazing. So keep going. Let's repeat that web address one more time. And thanks for all you're doing. Thank you. So it's http colon slash slash bit dot ly forward slash mobility dash plan. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Don. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. 
Our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 